0: As we begin today's sermon series, let's look at Solomon's life, a man who is called the wisest man who's ever lived, and see if we can find the wisdom we need to live a happy and fulfilled life. Amen. So get your outlines out of your bulletin, and if you have already recognized it, you filled in one of the blanks already, haptitude is the capacity for providential favor. I like that definition, don't you? We put those two words together because I believe God wants us to be happy. We'll find out about God's happiness in the next several weeks and starting today. And, we, and I put the words together because we have the capacity. We have the aptitude, the capacity within us for happiness. No matter what our life circumstance, God wants us to be happy. We'll see that in just a moment. As I said, we're going to start with Solomon. And Solomon was, a, was considered a, one of the wisest men who has ever, ever lived. When he walked this earth, he had everything that a man could, could want. For such a wise man, though, it's unbelievable to think that he thought that there was something more on the outside. You see, he started his life living for God, had the plan of God, he had the hunger for God, and he sought God in all of his affairs. But towards the end of his life, he got away from God and thought that there was something that was out there. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've had family members or maybe even yourself, you were serving God, you were living for God, you were in church, and you'd never been closer to the Lord, and that began to wane just a little bit. And you thought, you know, there's greater fulfillment, there might be greater joy or happiness out there outside of God's grace, outside of God's plan, maybe outside of the church. Maybe I will calculate it, maybe in a calculated way, I will just go for a season and I'll go have some fun and then I'll come back to the church or I'll come back to the Lord. Well, first of all, I want you to know that's just a lie from the enemy because the Bible tells us that there is pleasure in sin for a season. And here's the problem with that kind of thinking. When we allow ourselves to go outside like Solomon did and we begin to experience the things of the world, a lot of times those things have ramifications. For instance, we think we're going to go into the world and we think, well, have fun just for a season. We'll we'll try a little bit of alcohol. We'll try a little bit of of drugs. And what happens is, is we end up having a lifetime of addiction that we're fighting for the rest of our lives. See, it was pleasurable maybe in those first few moments, but then all of a sudden the ramification became a lifetime of addiction. We think that if we go outside of marriage or we have sex outside of marriage, that we're having fun, that it's pleasurable for a season. But what happens when a child is born or when you become sick or you become diseased? What happens for the rest of your life then? Then all of a sudden it's not near as fun as it used to be. The responsibility of that sin begins to settle in. See, that's the way Solomon was in his life. He was living for God and all of a sudden he decided, well, maybe there's something more on the outside. And he began to, what he thought, search for happiness, the first blank in your notes. And he says this in verse 1 of chapter 2, I decided to enjoy myself and find out what happiness is. He was living for God, and things were going on in his life. And he said, but you know what? I decided that I was going to search for happiness. I'm going to search myself. I'm going to find out where true enjoyment comes from. I'm going to go and find happiness. Again, we somehow start believing that it's more fun to be out there, that out there there's more life, there's more to enjoy, there's more pleasure, there's more to this world than what we could have when we experience when we live for God more enjoyment, more happiness, more outside of God's ultimate plan for our life than if we live for the Lord in our life. The Bible says this again in Hebrews chapter eleven twenty-five. 25. It says, though, you can enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. I guarantee you it will happen for a season, but then all of a sudden your world will come crashing down if we don't get back to trying to find out God's plan for our life. Look at Solomon. Solomon said this, not Simon says, Solomon says in your notes, all right? He said, this is what I tried. He said, I have accumulated things. He said, That's right. He said, I accumulated everything. He was the, not only the wisest man, but they said he was the most wealthy man. He was the most wealthy man on the planet. I mean, he had the Rolls Royce, the Bentleys, the BMWs, the Mercedes Benz. He had the most palatial palace. It was decked out with all of the things that you can, all the designer things that you could put in it. He had all the gold and all the silver. He had all the bling on his fingers and around his neck. He had the greatest designer wear on his body. He had it all. Secondly, in your notes, it said also that he experienced pleasures. He went out, and he tried to experience all the world had to, all the pleasures of this world. In fact, he began to marry, and he didn't stop marrying until he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't know what to do with one. I don't know what I'd do with 700, but that's another sermon for another day, amen. 700 wives, what what are you thinking? He also said, number three, that he had achieved success. He was the most influential man on the entire planet. He had climbed the corporate ladder. He had come through his father. Now he sets us the pinnacle of the most important nation on the entire planet, and he is the king of that nation. Everything flows through him. Everything goes through that nation. He is the most important, most successful person in all the world. Now, before we get too down on King Solomon here, doesn't that sound an awful lot like you, and me? I mean it sounds an awful lot like us, doesn't it? Because there's things that we do in our life. We we try to acquire things, we try to bring things into our life. In fact, a few years ago the popular bumper sticker read this the man who dies with the most toys wins. How do you know that's not true? See, we go out and we try to bring things into our lives that will make us happy. We go out and we try to experience pleasures like that are untold. We go out and we try to climb the corporate ladder and, and somehow achieve some kind of success for us. Somehow we want the recognition, the title, the corner of us. And we go out and we go after all of those things. But here's what Solomon said about those things. He said, after I did all of that, in verse 2 and verse 17 he said, I found all of it is meaningless. It's the chasing after the wind. You see, we think that by accumulating the things, we're going to be happy. We've got to have all the right symbols and status things in our life. But Solomon says, even though I was the king over an entire empire and I had slaves at my disposal, I was not happy. It was like chasing the wind. Psychology Today went out and they interviewed 52,000 Americans and they asked him this one question, what would, you, what would it take to make you happy? Here's what they said. They said, friends, a social life, a good job, being in love, recognition, success, sex, personal growth, good financial situation, having a house or an apartment. They said, being attractive or beautiful, living in a certain city, the religion, recreation and exercise, being a parent, marriage, or even Seeing happiness in your partner. Well, I didn't know if that list was all that it should be. And so we hit the streets and we tried to ask Southern Californians, what would it take for you to be happy? And here's some of their responses. Look at this. Hey, we're standing here in Anaheim, California, right outside Disneyland, called the happiest place on earth. And we're asking people, what makes them happy? They should be able to tell us right here, right? So what makes you happy? Ice cream. What about you? What makes you happy? My friends. Your friends. Alright. What about what makes you happy? Disney, Disney. Disney. Great. Since we're here, that's a great great <laughs> great answer. What makes you happy? What makes me happy is my family. family. Yes. What makes you happy? Um uh, Mickey Mouse. Perfect. Uh, sunshine. Perfect. Disney. Family. <laughs> Loved ones. Being in the happiest place on earth with all of my great friends. Perfect. The same, thing. the same thing. Family and friends. Family and friends. Family and friends. Family and friends. Uh, it's hard one. It should be me. <laughs> Getting lost in a mood. All right. Now the great thing, the great thing I have to tell you about that last couple is they come walking up, swinging hands, and they're you know just having the time of their life. So we're like, surely they're happy. We'll go ask them, right? So I ask her, what makes you happy? And she's like, oh, and she rattles off several things, and she never mentions him. And as soon as he pauses and goes, well, I don't know, she loses his hand, steps back and goes, you better say me. You didn't say him, right? I mean, sounds like we need counseling going on here. I don't know. But what you notice about the list that I gave you earlier and about the people on the screen is this, is that every one of those people thought that happiness was something from the external instead of something that was from the internal. You see, the popular idea of happiness is this, is having the right circumstances creates a happiness in your life. And that's what Solomon did. He went out to try to create happiness outside of his life. He thought, if I can get the right things, if I can have the right status, if I can do the right things, bring the right people in my life, if I can seek the right pleasures, get the right high, I can be happy. And that is a lie from this world, I can tell you right now. That you'll never find happiness, you'll never climb enough. Howard Hughes says this, he said, Howard, how much, one of the wealthiest men on the planet at his time. Howard Hughes, how much is enough? He said, just a little bit more. See, just a little bit more. You're always going to try to get another high. You're going to try to get a little bit more money. You're going to try to climb that next rung on the ladder. You're always going to try to go to that next place because you think that's where happiness is. It's all external. That's not God's plan for your life at all. In fact, That's not what God's word says. We tend to think in terms like this, when I get out of school, oh, then I'll be happy. Oh, when I get a job, then I'll be happy. When I get married, I will be happy. Let me just stop and say this right here. Not a marriage seminar, but if you get married to find happiness, you're ready for a divorce. Your spouse cannot make you happy. Only you can make yourself happy. Let's go on here. When I have kids, I'll be happy. Oh, my. <laughs> then you find yourself saying this. When the kids leave, I'll be happy. <laughs> you see, what does it take to make you happy? We tend, to just, we tend to think like Solomon. If I could acquire these things, then I will be happy. Here's in your notes. Solomon thought having the right circumstances, in your notes, brought happiness. But it's really about having the right attitude that ensures a happy life. See, here's God's life of happiness. In your notes, God's life of happiness comes right out of what is known as the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five in verse three. And you you know it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and say false things about you. Rejoice and be glad glad. So we have these opening lines from Jesus' famous Beatitudes Sermon on the Mount, and it's confusing to me. Anybody else with me? Because see, it says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Really? I think I'm blessed when everybody's leaving me alone and making me feel good. Come on. Blessed are you when you're poor in spirit. No, no, no. Blessed are me when I'm rich in spirit, huh? I mean, do you see the divine contradiction that is here? Does anybody with me? We read these and it's almost confusing to us. Blessed are you who are hungry and thirst. Blessed are you. And we go, what does all this mean? Well, in your notes, the word blessed means this in scripture. It really means this. It means happy is haptitude. Your divine providential capacity to be blessed, to be happy. God is saying this, so we could really read this passage like this: It could read, "Happy are you when you are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are you when you mourn for you shall be comforted. Happy are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are the merciful for they will be shown mercy Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God, happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for their namesake or for the kingdom of heaven. These are again divine contradictions, but now we 're beginning to unlock the mystery of what God wants for us. you see, think about this just for a moment with me just just think just for a second this is jesus 's first public sermon that he goes out and he begins to share with everyone that'll listen and he didn't talk about heaven he didn't talk about hell he didn't talk about how he'd been sent from God to take away the sin of the world he didn't talk about finances he didn't talk about possessions he didn't talk about prayer he didn't talk about God himself he didn't talk about the spirit that would come after him what did Jesus talk about happiness happiness you know why Because he knows it's the one subject that every single one in this room this morning wants for their life. How can we be happy? How can we be fulfilled? How can we live a life that that is filled with the happiness, the joy of the Lord which becomes our strength? How can we have this happiness in our life? Here's what I know. That if you have to have all of your problems solved before you're happy, you'll never be happy. If you have to have everything perfect in your life before you'll be happy you will never, ever be happy. See, in your notes, my happiness is determined by what's happening, not by what's happening around me, but what's rather what's happening inside of me. It's not the things that are going on around me, it's the things that are happening on the inside of me that God is building up within me. So let's look at the first step of happiness. In your notes, happiness begins with humility. The Bible says in Matthew chapter five, verse three, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now he's talking about, he's not talking about putting yourself down, low self-esteem. He's not talking about putting yourself down or, 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 or making yourself something that you're really not or trying to false humility. you know, putting yourself in false humility. That's not what this is talking about at all. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It simply means this. It means to depend upon God at all times. That's what he's saying. It's not in your notes, but you might want to write it down. It is to depend upon God at all times. In fact, here is what most people say that phrase means, poor in spirit. It means to have an awareness of spiritual bankruptcy apart from Christ. He's saying, happy are you when you come to the understanding in your life that you're going to be completely, when you understand that you're completely spiritually bankrupt without God. Now that begins to put it in a different perspective, doesn't it? See, many times you and I, we want to have control in our life. We want to control the situations around us. We, we feel like that we're in control. We feel like if we get enough money, if we have enough things, if we get enough people around us, we have enough friends around us, then we have this comfort zone that we build all around us. And all of those things are really meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. They're important, but it's not the most important thing. Jesus starts out right here saying, if you want to be happy in this life, happiness is obtainable. But you've got to come to the realization that you are spiritually bankrupt without God. No wonder why Jesus tells us in another verse that without him we can do nothing. But through him we can do all things. See, we begin to get an attitude that that we're a little bit better than what we really are that all of a sudden we we have a certain kind of clothes on, we have a certain kind of car that we're driving, we live in a certain neighborhood, we begin to have certain things around us, and we begin to think a little bit more highly of ourselves than we are. And Jesus said, that's not going to bring happiness in this life. In fact, that will bring frustration. You'll always try to get more things, have more people, live in a better house, live in a better neighborhood. You'll always try to keep climbing after these things that are unattainable. He says, you want happiness? True happiness is coming to the place that you're poor in spirit, that you recognize, you've internalized that you are spiritually bankrupt apart from God. Let me pause here just a minute before we get into this and break it down. But maybe you're here this morning and you needed that reminder. It's not about heaven or hell, it's not about whether or not you're going to go into eternity and spend the rest of your life with Jesus. But you just started thinking a little bit more highly of yourself than maybe you should. That you weren't as concerned maybe about that relationship. That you haven't been investing in it as much as you should. That you've kind of taken for granted the grace and the love of God. That you didn't really understand or you haven't been living in the fact that I am completely void without Christ in my life. See, that's the starting point. That's the starting point. Here's what humility does, how it increases happiness in your notes. And your, number one, it increases happiness. Humility reduces our stress. I don't know about you, but there are times because I'm a type A personality. Any type A guys out there that try to control everything? Huh? I mean... There are times in my life where the stress level gets high. I want it to be a certain way. I'm trying to make sure the family does this, the church does this, the ministries do that. I do this. And, and I'm trying to control it, and I feel like I'm like you know the Wizard of Oz, and I'm pulling the levers and strings behind the thing. And, and we're just not moving the way I want it to go. And then I find myself getting on my knees and going, God, I can't do this. And he goes, that's what I've been waiting on. Thanks for showing up. Now, I don't know if God talks to you that way. That's how he talks to me. He gets my attention that way. But isn't it true? When when I really realize that I'm not in control, and you think you might be in control, but all it takes is look at all the natural catastrophes that have happened. A tornado strike a city in, in, in Missouri, and the whole city's leveled. You've lost your church. You've lost your house. You've lost all your possessions. You're not in control. A tsunami rages in the ocean and strikes, the, and strikes a, a, an ocean front and you lose everything in a moment's time, maybe even family and friends. You're not in control. This past week, my former church lightning struck and it hit the top of the church and a fire broke out in the attic and, they, and they've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars of damages. Meeting in a school this morning, you know why? Because they're not in control. As much as you plan, as much as you prepare, as much as you try to put things in order, guess what? You are not in control. And when you realize that and you come before the Lord and you humble yourself before him, and you say, God, I'm not in control, but you are. You're the author and the perfecter of my faith. You can begin, whatever work you start, you're faithful to complete that till the end. I'm going to try to put all of my confidence and faith in you. Guess what happens to stress? Not on my shoulders. You know why almost every single Sunday I, I get up here and I say, on the concluding prayer, God, this is your church. These are your people. They're called by your name. Help them to go out with your anointing and do your work. You know why I say it almost every Sunday? God, I did my part. You called me to preach the gospel. I did everything I could. I prepared as hard as I could. I prayed as hard as I could. I preached as hard as I could. Now it's on them. Ha, ha, ha. Now that you know the truth, John chapter 17, verse 3, you'll be smart if you walk in it. Amen. That's just a little extra on the side there for you. All right. It just reduces the stress. So when we really come to God, we go, God, I am completely void and bankrupt without you in my life. It just reduces all the stress because now you put it on him. How many of you know he's able to carry that? Doesn't he say to cast all of our cares upon him because he cares for us? Don't you know he wants to shoulder the load for you? Here's what happens. Here's what humility does in bringing happiness. Number two, humility improves your relationships. How do you know somebody that is completely prideful and arrogant? If you're sitting seated beside them, don't raise your hand. But <laughs> huh? you're just, they're arrogant. I mean, all they talk about is them. All they're concerned about is them. All they, all they want to know is about, you know, they just want to tell their story. You get around them, and they talk about that, And uh, they're just arrogant. Anybody know somebody like that? They're just a joy to be around, aren't they? And how do you know somebody that's humble? And don't you just cling to them? Don't you just want to be around them? Don't they just build you up naturally? Don't they just ask the right questions? Don't they encourage you when you need encouragement? See, the people that walk in humility before the Lord and before men are those people that we are just drawn to because they... They they do build us up. They do lift us up in due season. There is a word that's aptly spoken. They they walk in that humility that comes because they've spent time with the Lord. St. Francis of Assisi, he was a monk, and he wrote in his memoirs, he said this about trying to stay humble. He said, in order to stay humble, I ask a fellow monk to sit down with me and tell me all of my faults the moment someone praises me. Now, guys, we don't have to be a monk to do that. We just go home to our spouses, and our wives are great at that. And All the men said, you're afraid to say amen. I understand out there. I'll say it for you, amen. Ladies, we laugh about it, but it really isn't your responsibility to keep us humble. In fact, it's not our responsibility to keep our wives humble, is it? In fact, you know, the great Billy Graham, his wife, Ruth Graham, she said this, it's not my job to make sure that Billy stays humble. My job is to love Billy unconditionally. It's God's job to keep him humble. How many you know, guys, we put our foot in our mouth enough times we don't need our, somebody pointed out, right? And all of, our, all of God's people said, amen. amen. See, God can do a better job at keeping us humble than you can. But you know what? We are all attracted to people in relationships that maintain that humbleness before the Lord. Number three, it releases God's power. This is what humility does. It releases God's power in us. James 4 and verse 6 says, God gives strength, strength to the humble. He empowers you. He walks beside you. He helps you. He's your cohort. Your 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 ever-present help in a time of trouble, that friend that will never leave you nor forsake you. He's the one that desires to hold your hand and walk through life to shoulder the low to get you through the ups and the downs of life. He said he gives strength to the humble, but he sets himself against the proud. Even more reason not to be prideful in our lives. I don't want God to set himself against me. I want him to work with me. Are you with me? Amen. Amen. Here's what it says in the Phillips translation. I love how it's worded. It says, happy are those who know their need for God, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's a great translation of what that verse is really saying. He so said, if you want to be happy in your life, here's how you maintain happiness. Humble yourself before the Lord. Recognize that you're spiritually void. Recognize that you're bankrupt before God without Christ. Get on a knee and say, God, I need you in my day-to-day activities, not just on Sunday, but God, in every area of my life, in my family, and in my finance, and running my business, or working at this job, I need you in everything that I do. So I'm going to put a knee down and I'm going to say, God, I need your help. And God says, oh, well, then the kingdom of heaven is open up to you. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good exchange. You know, we, we come to God and we're void. We're completely empty. And we say, God, we're just going to come. We don't have anything to put on the table. But because we recognize we have nothing, here's what God does. He says, oh, you recognize it? You know that you're in need of help? You know you need my life and your life working in you, the hope of glory to bring you to the place you need to go? That's what I've been waiting on. Let me open up the storehouse of heaven. The kingdom of heaven now becomes yours. How you know when you give nothing and you get everything in return, that's a great trade? And all we have to do to open that door is to humble ourselves before the Lord. Humility is not weakness. We'll learn about that when we talk about meekness in the series. But you want to be happy? It's not going out and trying to acquire, climbing a corporate ladder, experiencing pleasures. True happiness is what happens on the inside. It's a, obtaining the quality and the characteristic, the quality and the characteristic of humility. Now as the men and women go that are gonna serve us community in just a few moments, let me, let me bring this to a close. Because see, I, I know that some of you are here in the room this morning and it's maybe not about heaven or hell for you. It's not about going to heaven. You're in right relationship with God. But for you this morning, if you're like me, you've tried to pick up and try to control. You've tried to manipulate. You've tried to maybe make some things work out in your life. And you stood behind it and you said you were calling it responsibility. I'm being responsible. Well, maybe... God would call it something else. Maybe this morning what you need to do before we go to the table of the Lord, maybe before we go and we begin to participate of those elements that are so sacred, maybe you just need to make an altar where you are and say, Lord, forgive me for trying to control this in my life. I recognize that I'm to walk in humility. I'm to be completely, that my life really is completely spiritually bankrupt without you working in my life. We sung about it earlier. You need to be, Lord, the centerpiece of all that's going on in my life. And I've kind of done that on Sundays, but I've not really done that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday. Be the centerpiece, God, of my life again. I'm going to let go of the reins. I'm going to let go of the control. And I'm, I'm going to trust that you're big enough. You're a big enough God to work things out for my good because all things work together for good to them who love the Lord. And maybe you're here this morning, and I'm just going to ask you, everyone in this room, to bow your heads, to close your eyes, and maybe you're here.